This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network with me, Ivan Simic. Thanks for downloading this edition of the program, and I do hope you enjoy it. Eugenics has dominated the West in the first half of the 20th century, but eugenics in Canadian province of Alberta was somewhat specific. Eugenic programs lasted until the 1970s, and a significant number of people were sterilized. By taking an example of an institution originally designed to be a school for young people with intellectual disabilities, my guest today has explored a very close relationship between eugenics and institutionalization of people with disabilities. By examining practices at the Michener Center in Red Deer, northern Alberta, Professor Claudia Malacrida has opened many questions, including the normalization of eugenics, social exclusion, dehumanization, gender and sexuality of the inmates, understanding of economics and individuality, and loss of identity of those affected. Claudia Malacrida is a professor of sociology at the University of Lethbridge. Welcome to New Books Network. Thanks, welcome. Let's start with a brief introduction of history of institutionalization of persons with disabilities in Canada. What was the main motive and explanation for such approach to persons with disabilities in the early 20th century? Well, um, Canada was very much a settler society uh, at that time, and uh, people were living in very um, un unserviced uh, locations, very deeply rural, no schools. Uh, if there were schools, they were taught by people who were not well-trained and teaching many grades at the same time. And simultaneously, the uh, Education Act demanded uh, compulsory education for all children. So uh, a lot of kids came into the, these very poor educational systems um, without any resources to service them at all. And they came from deprived backgrounds. So you had a lot of kids with learning disabilities, some of them quite mild. Um, and I will say also a lot of children who came from families that were experiencing um, distress, poverty, uh, social isolation, uh, displacement. Many of the people were dealing with English as a second language, um, uh, alcoholism, uh, lack of medical care, all of these sort of social problems were happening and causing a great deal of stress, stress and pressure on these nascent uh, settler states. So <clears throat> families were, uh, were often uh, very forced, really, I think, to be neglectful of their children. Uh, there were no resources for them out on the farm. They had to work very hard to survive. And their kids were often really ne- neglected and, and left alone. So at the beginning of the, uh, of the last century, uh, the state um, opened up places like Michener Center. I mean, that was in Alberta, but there were many similar institutions uh, established in provinces across uh, particularly the West, but Ontario as well, uh, that promised uh, to take care of these children, provide them with, with appropriate medical care 
and with appropriate educational support. So um, Michener Center specifically, prior to its opening, um, had children who were um, who were in the province of Alberta. The closest facility for those kids was in Manitoba, you know, over a thousand miles away. So if you you know, surrendered your child to that institution, you knew you were not ever going to see them again. So at the time, this was promised as a really positive and progressive kind of service. I see. And you also made a connection that this idea of universal education was very connected with the idea of having economically independent individuals. So how that worked with the people with, uh, let's say, mild intellectual disabilities? Well, I mean, the, the history of intellectual disability outside of Canada is, is one that is really tied to the sort of highs and lows of economies. And, and the, the notion of dependency is, I think, uh, a continuous thread in, in that history. The idea that uh, the modern citizen, the ideal modern, modern citizen must be independent and must be productive is very much part of the progressivist narrative of the West. And that was very much the case in Canada. So we saw that children were um, encouraged to be trained, uh, trained appropriately, and the goal was always economic independence. Um, At least that was what was stated. But I think in practice... um, these institutions took on a life of their own, uh, became systems in which um, people who were not disabled managed to have really great careers and uh, a lot of scope for their practice as, uh, as, um, as helpers, but also as researchers. Many, many careers were built of, you know, sort of intellectual um, Giants who did research on on people who were incarcerated in these institutions, and um, the you know the hope that ch- that children would be trained and would be um, you know able to go back and live as productive citizens in the community often didn't pan out. In fact, children were sort of produced in these institutions as dependents. You know, they were not uh, taught how to look after themselves. They were not given life skills. So there's a lot of ironies embedded in the in, in the narrative of dependency and, and independence as far as institutionalization is concerned. I see. And the top of that was the idea of eugenics. Can you tell us a little bit of, about how eugenics came to Alberta? Um, no, I can't. <laughs> What I can tell you uh, is um, is that eugenics, as a, as a as a set of ideas and as a discourse, was very much part of um, psychological and medical practice in the first half of the 20th century. And these ideas traveled, uh, uh, you know, from Europe to North America and back again. Um, other people have written more extensively on the sort of development of the ideas of eugenics and the the um, history of the sort of giants of the eugenics movement, both in Europe and in, and in North America, mostly actually in the United States. And in that sense, Alberta was part of a global eugenic movement, right? It, it was very much so. And I think um, 
although it was never, ex- I mean, the, the language was not used uh, specifically in the establishment of the institution, but certainly in uh, indirect ways with the establishment of Michener Center, uh, the, the, there was very much an, a, a sort of a hidden idea that sequestering people would uh, prevent them from um, <clears throat> from um, infecting, and I'm using language that would be in keeping with the, the language of the time, infecting the population with their bad seed. So children uh, who were brought into the institution and young adults were really seen as dangerous and endangering to society. Um, there was a belief, so I, I mentioned that, you know, the reason for the establishment of these uh, institutions was around education and training and that there were, you know, um, really um, resolution to social problems such as, you know, isolation, family breakdown, divorce, um, alcoholism, uh other kinds of uh, things that today would be not considered to be necessarily, uh, you know, moral or biological problems were considered in those times to be inheritable. So when we look at the records of who was admitted to Michener Center over those over those years, really they were um, highly overrepresented in terms of uh, children of divorce, children who had come through the foster or orphanage systems, uh, children who were children of Eastern European immigrants who were seen as being naturally less intelligent and more um, animalistic, if you will. Uh, the children were coded uh, in, their, in their admissions in terms of their ethnicity, their family history as to whether they were, you know, what their family income level was, what the family makeup was. And these things were assumed to be something that was passed on from generation to generation. And so the idea of putting a child into an institution and the language is when they were debating it in the, in the House of uh, Parliament in, in Edmonton, the language was very much about pollution and, and trying to contain the pollution of these kinds of people by putting them in institutions. I see. So you have conducted a number of interviews with the survivors. And, yes. Uh, so what was, uh, let's say, a common story? How they came to the Michener Center? Who sent them there? Was it, uh, was it their families or was it other state institutions? for example, state schools who couldn't handle with these children and so on? Um, I think it was a mix, but there really are two stories. One, one is the story of children who found themselves in the system, in the, in the provincial governmental you know, child welfare system in one way or another. They were in uh, orphanages or they were in the foster system or they had um, entered into um, the delinquency, the juvenile sort of criminal justice system. Uh, Kids um, who came in this way, certainly through the criminal justice system, there were things, issues like truancy, not attending school, which I think in most of those cases was a legacy of being part of schools that didn't actually service them properly. So, um, you know, the, 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 again, the issue of compulsory education became a hook through which children entered into the system. So that was one uh, kind of, of um, individual. 
The other kind of individual often came because their families were characterized as problematic. So children who came from divorce or where there was violence in the family would come to the attention of social workers um, or, or educators or family physicians, and the family would be encouraged to surrender their children to care. So... Um, a lot of the, a lot of the children really spoke about, um, and, and I'll add one other category to that sort of second group um, would be single parents. So a couple of the people I spoke with had widowed fathers um, who were just seen as incapable of looking after you know their kids and the farm and all of these things. So, but while reading yeah. the book, I got the sense that many of these families were actually cheated in a sense that they actually had no information of no. what's happening at the Wichner Center, and they were promised that their children are going to have proper oh. education and training. Yeah, the, I mean, this was always the, the language and the rhetoric, uh, that they would have appropriate care, that they would have appropriate education, and that this would be a temporary measure in most cases. I mean, not with kids who are really severely um, disabled, but with, you know, kids who were who were coming through those kinds of routes that I'm talking about, you know, not having survived well in school or being picked up by a truant officer. I mean, one kid spoke about being picked up. He was in an alley in his neighborhood picking bottles, right? He was making money for the family, not attending school, 12 years old, and the truant officer picked him up. And, uh, and that sort of initiated a long series of interventions. Um, yeah, families were told that their children would be treated very well. And and one of the um, problems with that was that families were also simultaneously discouraged from maintaining contact with their children for the first year of the children's admission to the institution. And that was sort of done under the guise of uh, permitting these kids to adjust to the institutional life and reducing stress on the children, blah, blah, blah. But what it ultimately meant was these children came to be quite um, quite isolated and to feel themselves to be quite abandoned. And it's very clear in the record that um, when you read the ward notes or you read some of the unusual incident um, reports, that the staff were not particularly um, encouraging, let's say, or supportive of family involvement with children. It, it, it operated as a form of surveillance. As far as staff was concerned, it caused the children uh, to be upset, to ask to go home. It caused a lot of chaos that um, really, you know, wasn't wasn't welcomed by the institution. So these kids would go in and would basically, over the years, lose contact with their family and, of course, lose any kind of advocacy there might have, there might be for them. I see. And before we go to uh, talking about uh, the Missionary Center itself, let's, uh, let's explain uh, how the center grew to what it actually became during the 1950s and 60s. It started as a boarding school, but then it became really huge and industrialized, right? It did. Uh, I mean, I think I alluded to that a little bit uh, when we were talking about economics. You know, in the um, 
in the language of dependency, you know, we always hear about disabled people as being dependents and that this is really a problem. But there's a guy by the name of Gary Albrecht who wrote um, uh, wrote a book in the 80s uh, called The Disability Industry, and it sort of alludes uh, to, or makes a claim, in fact, that uh, workers and researchers and professionals are dependent on disabled people for their careers, and they're not interested particularly in um, rehabilitating people to the extent that they can live without support. It would basically knock them out of a job. And I think some of that happened at Michener Center, uh, the notion that, you know, um, the, the growth of the institutional population was not proportional to the growth of the population of the province. And so it opened up and there were 115 people in there. And by the time it reached its heyday in the, in the late 60s, there were uh, over 2,400 people living there. And it had begun as an institution only for children. Uh, but by the 50s, uh, there was a identified need for an, uh, for an adult wing, which uh, was built um, kitty-corner to the children's facility. And I, I think I should talk about the physical scale of it as well. It was on a, on a, a, a piece of land of 360 acres with over 66 buildings on it by the time it had reached its apex. There was a fire hall. There was a on-site um, greenhouse. The the children worked in a way that so belying the notion of dependency. The children worked in a way that supported the institution. They made clothing. They made shoes. They repaired machinery. They did their own laundry. They did their own cooking. All of these things in institutional sort of factory settings. Okay, let's return to the life in the institution. You had mentioned that once children were admitted that they were isolated from their parents and that there were attempts to detach them from their families. So how was their life in the institutions? What were the practices and how these inmates were isolated and dehumanized? I think for me some of the hardest parts of interviews were when people did speak about how they came into the institution. Uh, how uh, betrayed they felt. Uh, they were often not told. So the the um, you know the kind of classic narrative would be you know a kid's playing at home and a big black car rolling up a long dusty driveway and uh, you know a man and a lady in a suit getting out and mom you know looking distraught handing the child over and a suitcase over not very many words being exchanged and that being the beginning of the separation from the family. The child would go by themselves or they'd go with the parents, but a very quiet drive without a lot of um, explanation. And then they were entered into the facility, deloused, had their their clothing and possessions removed from them uh, and put into isolation for a week or so in order to... um, uh, achieve some sort of adjustment and to be tested and observed and then then put into the general population. And most of the people described it as a horrifically shattering and shocking experience. They didn't understand why their parents had left them. They didn't understand when they would ever see them again. 
They were terrified by the chaos of the institution. Uh, they were terrified by the violence of the institution, and I, and they were alone. It was terrible. Let's talk about that violence. You have uh, wrote a lot about it. Could you bring it more to our listeners to explain what kind of violence was happening there and what kind of dehumanization on pretty much a daily level? I think I, I talk about two kinds of violence, and uh, you know that that became evident both from the interviews that people gave and from the written record, one being routine or everyday violence and the other being more extraordinary. So I'll talk about the routine violence first. Um, life was nasty, brutish and short in the institution. And I mean, we know this just because the lifespan of people institutionalized was in fact quite short compared to the lifespan of similarly diagnosed people in the community today. Uh, people were wakened, the, the clock ruled everything. Uh, people slept in very close proximity to one another uh, without any privacy. Uh, there was a lot of crying out at night. I mean, you know, imagine being in a room with uh, 70 or 80 other children, and that's how large those words were, who were similarly, you know, distraught and alone from their families. So a lot of night terrors and uh, anxiety and, um, you know, people uh, people making uh, a lot of noise and sometimes attacking one another. Uh, food was in short shrift. Uh, uh, staffing was in short shrift. So there was not a lot of surveillance. So there was quite a bit of intra- um, inmate uh, violence uh, that happened every every day. Um, in the morning, people would be wakened, literally herded. Uh, I also interviewed a few staff members, and they described arriving onto the ward in the morning, and there would be a lineup of naked people waiting to be showered and toileted, you know, just standing naked in the hallway waiting. People were showered en masse, uh, large rooms without any partitions or privacy. Um, the toilets were similarly uh, organized in that way. One of the staff mentioned um, that for facilitating uh, the, the toileting of people, they'd feed them in the morning and then, you know, put everybody on these toilets in these communal rooms, so 20 or 30 toilets in a row. And then there was one cord at the door that they could flush all toilets simultaneously, thus, you know, facilitating the workers' time. Showers were often in, uh, involved in a, in a kind of violent and dehumanizing way, naked, while staff wore rubber boots and a rubber apron and hosed people down. Uh, so people would be crying and screaming through those kinds of uh, processes as well. Uh, people described things like um, force feedings, you know, being fed too quickly with somebody have a swallowing or a gagging problem. And um, one uh, one woman described uh, what, removing her son. So I also interviewed some a parent of somebody who had had a child there because he had um, aspirated and developed uh, pneumonia from aspirating his food. Uh, and she attributed that to Poor feeding practices. Like I said, I mean, there was low staff ratios, not a lot of training, not a lot of respect. So rough handling was a was an everyday part of life. But it seems that then the entire schedule was based on actually the staff's needs. Yes, absolutely. 
So, you know, people talked about actually being put into bed at 5.30 in the evening, like they'd have their meal at 4.35, and then they would just be, you know, in bed for the night. Uh, the way that people were treated in the daytime, they, if they, those who didn't work, and many did, and I, I'm assuming we'll talk about that shortly, but those who didn't work were just sort of warehoused in these day rooms that were um, very big and very empty, uh, TV sort of set in the corner behind a mesh wire thing just making white noise, um, inadequate seating so people would be on the floor, often incontinent. If you needed to pee, they were locked rooms, so if you needed to go to the washroom, you would have to hope that somebody would hear you yell amongst the chaos of the of the day room that existed. Staff would be locked off from people and observing that the nursing stations were sort of slightly raised and, and a true Foucauldian panopticon slightly raised and overlooking these day rooms while nurses sat in the chart room and basically um, didn't have a lot of interaction with, with, with the residents. And there was also a lot of violence coming from the staff itself, right? And a lot of covering up. There was, yeah. When the unusual incident uh, files yielded up a lot of information, and um, there were actually a couple of incidents in which somebody uh, was removed from staffing. Uh, but some of the some of the descriptions of injuries, people, it's kind of interesting the way that the the records speak about these injuries. People would just, you know, um, sustain or you know, receive or evidence a broken arm. You know, there would never be a description of how that happened. It would be just suddenly, you know, someone would notice that there was a, you know, a laceration or a break or bruising or burning or, you know, these kinds of physical injuries would be described as though they just appeared from nowhere. Um, but there, and, and I think there was quite a bit of, um, staff hazing in the in as an introductory sort of initiation into working at the institution. Um, a couple of uh, the the people, who, the workers who I spoke I spoke with, described incidents in which they were um, sort of made to interact with patients in ways that made them ashamed. So one guy described, you know, a game in which they threw balls at at the at the children and. Um, it was a, you know, they were targets, and if you didn't participate in that, you were seen as a, you know, a bad colleague. I see, and when I was reading that, I was uh, actually wondering how was it possible, how could one explain that, and it's more to say that that was happening after the Second World War, after uh, yes. the discovery of the horrors of the Holocaust. Then I was wondering, what was behind this what was behind the staff's behavior and practices? Was it shame? Was it already dehumanized image of these people? Was it institutional life? Was it all together? I think, you know, like there's a fair literature on, um, on residence uh, and institutionalization. I mean, the deinstitutionalization movement occurred in the 80s, and so this literature sort of goes, there's, there's a whole literature on the institutionalized personality, you know, where dependencies were actually created by institutional life, you know, where life was, you know, I mean, when people um, talked about how they, how they were by the time they left the institution, many of them had never chosen their own clothing or decided when to get up or when to go to bed or what to eat, like they 
they had never had money. They had never had, you know, so this creates a personality. And and we have a very um, developed literature on the institutionalized personality as far as inmates are concerned, but less so uh, in terms of those who work there. And I think because we didn't actually, they didn't show up for interviews. You know, it, it was very fortunate for me to be able to speak to people who would actually work there because many, and I've, since publishing the book, those I've had a few people who have worked there who insist that it was really a lovely place, be in touch with me. So I think you have to protect yourself from what's happening in those places in order to continue to work there. Uh, you know, you have to tell yourself that you're doing good, even if you're not. You have to tell yourself that this is the best that could be done for those people, even if it isn't. Um, otherwise, I think it's very difficult to go to work and, and, and do, the, do the work that is done. And I will say, I think there were some people who were just sadistic who showed up there. And because these residents were not seen as people, uh, they were really given a lot of free reign. You know, nobody, nobody really called them on it. And when they did, it was somebody who was really so bad that, um, that it couldn't be denied or the injuries were located, uh, you know, were, were discovered by, you know, the necessity of having to take somebody to a public hospital and inquiries followed or parents who did show up might discover injuries and, and raise a ruckus or a new person would come on staff who didn't uh, sort of socialize properly. And there's a, there's a story in the book about one such uh, young woman who began to work there who, uh, who told on uh, a man who clearly had a record of sustained violence and quite severe violence against uh, inmates. And in, in this instance, he'd been kicking somebody and broken several of their ribs. And she went and spoke to somebody and broke ranks, and and then a few other people followed suit. So I think there was fear even amongst some of the workers for, of these bullies who were given free reign there. Considering all that, how hard was it for you to actually gain access to research these things? How protective was the Michener Center itself? Well, Michener Center, I'm going to just say, is not nearly, I mean, right now I think there's probably a hundred and five or six people in it. So it's a very small place compared to what it once was. And it is also staffed very differently to what it once was. And um, and so I just want to say that, that it's not the place that I'm writing about today. But all of that, but all of that said, it was um, quite difficult to gain access. It's a public building. And I wanted to just see what it looked like. And it was quite difficult to even get permission um, to enter the grounds uh, until a recent change in the in the board and um, directorship of the institution occurred. Uh, it was a parent-run board for many years. And, you know, um, I don't want to vilify any parents, but they were, you know, parents who have their children in there are, convinced and committed to the idea that this is the best place for their children. And they did not want to have this ugly past dug up. Um, and there were other issues as well. Accessing uh, accessing the actual um, archival records uh, was quite difficult because of freedom of information uh, legislation. So 
Um, I didn't, I mean, I, I didn't have the capacity to access my own record because I wasn't a resident there. So I had to use more sort of generic uh, records, annual reports, and then the, the more specific ones that had names. It was kind of a fishing expedition. I had to work collaboratively with an archivist and hope that they understood what I was looking for. It wasn't the same kind of process as being able to go and just look through the boxes. During this interview, we can only scratch the surface of all horrific things that you have uh, examined in your book. And one of those horrific, let's say, institutions and that you have visited is the so-called side rooms. So in which yeah. residents were isolated and dehumanized even further. Could you tell us more about what these side rooms were and how it was a controlling mechanism for others? So side rooms, and some people call them timeout rooms or quiet rooms, uh, were built on, on on every ward and uh, and I will say I did actually uh, ultimately get a tour of the of the Michener Center and there's some photographs of what a side room looks like in the book but they're basically um, you know an eight by eight room uh, with a very heavy uh, locked door and a one-way mirror on uh, on on the door a small one-way mirror and uh, no no light uh, or or sort of glass block light, so no view to the outside world, and a drain on the floor, and basically that's it. And so there was no who, toilet or anything? No, no, and people, um, yeah, so people who misbehaved or had, you know, problems or who were caught fighting or who spoke back or who, you know, refused to eat whatever they were offered or, you know, very various uh, sort of infractions, would find themselves in side rooms uh, to quiet down. And uh, they were often just tossed in um, with a mattress on the floor or a blanket, and, and, that's, and that would be it, naked. And uh, so people described having, you know, peed themselves and have defecated on the floor, and, you know, and, and knowing that they could be seen and seen through the, through the glass and be heard from the... Um, from the wards, um, one person described not being in a side room, but that there was a regular occurrence of a, by a psychologist in his ward, particularly bullying one one kid who would you know come in and, and grab that kid and drag him into the side room, often at dinner as everybody sat close by, and you know the kids crying and screaming. I think was really meant to act as a, a cautionary kind of uh, tale for those uh, who weren't in the side room about what would happen to them if they misbehaved. Can we talk about any uh, reaction to this kind of uh, treatment, perhaps resistance by the inmates, passive or active? Yeah, I think, I mean, there was resistance in some ways, but not as much as you'd I mean, there was, I think the biggest form of resistance and the most obvious form of resistance came through escapes. And escape attempts were, they were called elopements uh, in the record. And elopements were um, a fairly regular occurrence. And in fact, there were several um, deaths of people who ran away uh, in inclement weather, drowned in the river that was close by Michener Center, or died of exposure from being out several nights, and um, so so escape was a was a was a not um, 
uncommon ex- experience. Um, some people escaped multiple times. Some people escaped and never came back. Uh, but mostly they were uh, they were found and, and brought uh, brought back to the institution. Uh, people talked about you know these sort of weapons of the week, uh, slowing down their work, mumbling under their breath. Uh, you know, uh, one woman talked about having uh, what was the story? Oh, she she ended up becoming sick from something that an, uh, a matron had done to her. Uh, around food, she became sick, and and her um, her internal dialogue about that was to sort of say, "There, it serves you right. You know, you've done this thing to me, and now I can't work because I'm sick." So that, I mean, that's a pretty quiet form of resistance. I think most people became subdued and and cowed by their experience. And yet, after all, that institution was supposed to educate these inmates. Did education ever happen? Um, only in the 1950, 1956 was a school even built on the campus. So for 30 uh, there, years, there was not a proper school. No, no, not at all. And that school was is very small. So if you think that there were 2,500 people living on campus in that time, it's a six-classroom school, and. Uh, I mean, this is a kind of this gives you a sense of the valuing of the inmates. One person um, described having been in school. Many of the people didn't, but he he um, he was you know quite a bright kid, and he described how in his ward, which would have been called a high grade ward, they had this kind of language of classification, high grade and low grade. In his high grade ward, there were two groups of boys, and they would Actually, change clothes, so they wore just, you know, gowns or or uh, pajamas if they if they were not in school, and then they had school clothes. So that one group would go in the morning to school and come back, and they would exchange clothing with the, the afternoon group who would go and do the same do the same thing in the afternoon. The schooling itself topped out at grade five, and. Intriguingly, you know, many of the kids who came into the institution had already achieved grade five before they were even admitted. So, I mean, it it wasn't it wasn't anything that was in keeping with the promise at all. And I guess that, that education was not really tailored to individual needs. A lot of people described uh, becoming literate as adults after they left the institution. So we can only. Surmise that the human potential uh, was not developed while they were in the institution. You have mentioned that uh, they were also doing some work there; they were producing things. Uh, could you tell us more about that and how actually the institution depended on their economical work? Yeah, uh, inmates worked uh, in the institution on a number of levels. So I, I've alluded to this high grade, low grade kind of. Division that existed. High-grade inmates provided um, patient care to low-grades. They fed patients. They made beds. They um, dressed people. They moved them from one um, one you know bed to the day room or whatever. They provided primary care. They also ran all of the uh, laundry. The uh, they worked in the kitchens. They served food. 
They worked in the warehouses and the greenhouses. They worked in the laundry. They worked in the sewing room, making uh, the canvas outfits that inmates wore. And they also, uh, so that was all in the institution. So they were, they were integral to the operation of the institution. But they also worked under the guise of what was called training. So this was part of the educational mandate, in a sense, um, in the community. So uh, boys worked for farmers and in light industry doing work. Uh, and girls worked as, um, as au pairs and nannies and housekeepers. Um, none of them receiving really any pay. Some received like a small stipend. It would go to cover their ability to buy things in the canteen or whatever. But most spoke about not ever really having any access to whatever earnings they made. But isn't it then even more shocking that many of these people were actually sent to the institution out of fear that they cannot be economically independent? I know. And yet, once in there, they were actually expected to contribute economically. And Absolutely. they did contribute economically. And they contributed economically without that being the leverage through which they were able to leave the institution. Yeah. It, in fact, sort of operated against them. If they were productive, they were a good worker. Like, who would want to let that go? And I think another thing that has to be taken into account on, on this on this particular subject we haven't really touched on yet eugenics, but many of the of the young women who had been sterilized at the same time are working as nannies and babysitters for people in the community who've been sterilized because people say they're not fit to take care of children, and yet the community is employing them to do precisely this. Okay, let's move to that, the most shocking issue, I would say, the issue of involuntary sterilization. Uh, so please tell us more about that active eugenics at the Missioner Center. Why were people sterilized? Who decided? And who was targeted? So uh, we'll start with the legislative piece. So the Alberta Sexual Sterilization Act is, is put into place in 1928. And, and, and when it be- begins, it is a voluntary act. Um, It is uh, designed for, and, and, you know, many social reformers, and not all of them conservative, in fact, many of them feminist and liberal, made uh, made an argument that women who were under the kind of pressures that I described, you know, the social isolation, poverty, subject to violence, uh, you know, dealing with too many unwanted children, you know, chaos in the family, all of those kinds of things, Uh, that they wanted to have the ability to control their reproduction, which is a fair assertion. Uh, so the Sexual Sterilization Act opens, and it offers this option to people. But, uh, that act was brought in 1920s, right? Yeah, 1928. And so it, it is a voluntary act. It does mention things like psychosis. It does mention things like uh, like mental defect. But it's a very brief act, and it really is one that sort of says you could avoid all of this if you would, you know, if you if you wish. So surprisingly, they don't end up with a great deal of uptake, and um, and so in the 30s, there's an amendment to the act, and the amendment to the act basically uh, makes it that if you are identified as somebody who is mentally defective, which de facto means if your IQ is 70 or below, or if you are psychotic, which was a term that was a pretty loosely applied and ill-understood uh, diagnosis, or if you had Huntington's chorea, 
then you did not need to actually provide consent. The state could um, administer tests, and uh, and and they could uh, they could um, sterilize you without your consent. So this targeted people who were at Michener Center in an extraordinary way because most of them were there because of mental defect. And, um, and hence began uh, a sort of hand-in-glove relationship between uh, a board that was established by the Sexual Sterilization Act, the Alberta Eugenics Board, and the Michener um, leadership. There was significant overlap between uh, the members of the Eugenic Board and Michener leadership. Uh, Eugenic Board meetings were held uh, regularly in Michener Center, and the vast majority of, of individuals involuntarily sterilized under the uh, Sexual Sterilization Act came from Michener Center. And you also mentioned uh, that during the, during the meetings of these boards, they actually took five to ten minutes to decide if somebody yeah, would be sterilized or not, which was quite shocking. It was quite shocking. Yeah, the average the average time was 11 minutes for a case, and uh, and in the Michener files with mental defect, the, the number of cases that were actually declined were like not even worth counting. So there was uh, two categories. There was like passed uh, with um, sort of reservations, and that would be people who had to get consent. And then there was past clear, which were people who were um, passed by the board for a sterilization and who didn't have to have consent. And past clear was was uh, really typically people with intellectual disability. So it came to be that in Michener that this was a kind of a regular rite of passage as people moved into puberty, people went and had the operation or the cut. And uh, it was kind of understood uh, what it it was understood as a process, although many people didn't really understand what was happening to them. They didn't understand that they could not have children ever. Um, many people were told that they were having um, an appendectomy or that they were just having there was they were having an exploratory surgery because there was something wrong. But considering lack of any proper education, they probably didn't have any chance to no. understand what was happening. No, no and, they, and in most cases they were at like pubescent. I mean, I don't know about you when you were 13 or 12, but if somebody had told you that you needed to have your appendix out, you probably would just say, okay. Yeah, you have no idea. Yeah. And what about parents? What about uh, guardians um, of these people? You know, I think it's a time, I, I'm not that things have changed tremendously. I mean, there's maybe a little, a little less, um, respect and, you know, sort of acceptance of medical authority. But I think parents were told that this was something that would um, be the best decision for their children, um, if they were told. Uh, sometimes people describe being told that it would help their behavior, which of course was foolish and, and not true, that having a sterilization would calm the child down. Um but but I think in most cases, parents were actually not asked, and they didn't provide their consent. They weren't meant to. They didn't have to. So I just want to talk about the 70-point 70, 70 IQ cutoff, if I could, because um, that would be the magic number at which uh, 
at which somebody would be identified as no longer requiring to provide their consent. And who was uh, but, administrating these tests? Well, that's the thing. You know, it was they were these were administered in house. Um, Leonard Levan, who was the director of the institution for many years, uh, counted himself as a psychiatrist, but in fact he was never trained as such. He was a medical doctor, so he may have administered some of these IQ tests. But um, one of the people who I interviewed actually operated as the chief psychologist with a bachelor's degree in psychology. And he spoke about how when he first began working at Michener Center, he administered uh, his first IQ test without any training whatsoever. So that's that's the bad training piece. There's another piece, though, where I've talked about the sort of institutionalized personality, somebody who has had no education somebody who is never allowed to leave a locked facility, someone who never has the opportunity to make decisions about what to wear, eat, you know, read, get up, do, they're not going to score, you know, in a way that is actually reflective of their capability on an IQ test because they've basically been living in an isolation tank. So um, Leilani Muir, who was one of the first litigants against the um, Alberta government for um, compensation for unlawful sterilization, was retested. She was tested at 69 and 68 on the whisker uh, a scale um, by the institution, uh, so very close to the edge anyway. And when she was tested in uh, during the trial, she tested at 105, which is above average. I mean, even if you are well physically and mentally, scientifically IQ tests are quite disputed. Yes, they are. And they're culturally specific. Exactly. And yeah, no, there's plenty. And, you know, to have these administered by somebody with a bachelor's degree and have it be the hinge upon which this event hangs, is uh, it's outrageous. So when did it stop? When did these... Uh, involuntary sterilization finally ended at the Michener Center and in Alberta? Well, Alberta had a social credit government for many, many years. We have a long history of uh, conservative governance and gover- government parties for lengthy periods of time. So the, after 40 years, the SOCREDs were um, elected out in 1972, and the incoming progressive conservative Depart- party under the leadership of Peter Lockheed and under the um, uh, under the initiation of David King, uh, one of their very first acts was to rescind the act. But I will also say, so that happened in 1973. And, and I, I will also say that looking at the record of the of the actual eugenic board and the cases, they actually ramped their activities up as they came to understand that they were going to be shut down. I think these people really believed they were doing good work, even into the 70s, even in face of uh, scientific evidence that showed there was no benefit to be had, and in the face of the uh, of the, the Nuremberg trials that showed us what medical malfeasance can really look like. And finally, so when and how things started to change at the center itself? And- then did it start to improve, and how is it now? So things started to improve really actually like in the 50s. The school was built, for example. Parents uh, parents did become increasingly involved. 
Uh, I don't think it helped everyday ward life, and I don't think it helped every inmate because, you know, it was a very small group of parents. We also started to see a larger cultural shift around disability and uh, re-inclusion. So in the book, there's a discussion about uh, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, who had a kid who had um, Down syndrome, and they they treated that child very publicly and accepted her. Uh, Rose Kennedy, one of the one of John Kennedy's sisters, uh, had a had a brain injury from epilepsy and had had a um, a lobotomy, and she was uh, still a quasi public figure. And we started to see a sort of a shift in ideas around whether or not people like that should be sequestered. And so we started to have a movement here in Canada as well towards community living. Um, Some of it run by parents, uh, some of it run by people who had worked in the institution previously and had been horrified. There were a couple, there were a couple of very high profile exposés. There's a wonderful book called Christmas in Purgatory that was written, um, and it's a photo essay uh, that was written and published by a psychologist in the States. Geraldo Rivera uh, did an expose of the Willowdale School. He actually hid a camera inside his shirt and, uh, and went in and filmed a place very similar to what Michener uh, was, and that hit the public news. And so there was a, a groundswell of of sort of reaction against this hidden abuse. Um, and people people uh, started to work towards having people released. I want to say that the releasing of people was not well done. It was underfunded. It was done with resentment. Uh, one, one of the people I interviewed uh, described being um, discharged with a bag of his meds and uh, and nothing else. And, uh, you know, I mean, he lived on the streets and uh, became a drinker and abused drugs. And it took him a long time to get his life together, um, as you can imagine, without any kind of life skills, no education, nothing. So it wasn't good to, yeah. Are there any evidence that uh, some people actually managed to... Uh, well, they were not really educated into anything, but did anyone ever leave the institution to make a living kid? Uh, oh, and after yes. everything? Many, many did. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I think there are many people in that place who should never have been there. Uh, many, many people who came because, um, so uh, two of the women I interviewed, uh, for example, had had polio. In the 50s, they had just been out of school for four or five years because they'd been ill. And so they weren't actually sort of accommodable when they came back uh, into into the school system. There was no police for them. Uh, I mean, there was nothing untoward about those women, except that the, 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 the society that they lived in couldn't accommodate them or couldn't find a place for them. So, yeah, Leilani Muir, who I mentioned earlier, I mean, she went on to live a full life. She wrote a book. She had a play written about her. She uh, worked and lived in Vancouver and Edmonton. She was very much an activist. Um, many people I know who um, who worked for people, for advocacy organizations, I'm thinking of Royce Pareko, for example, who was the national president of People First, very, you know, had gone to the government and submitted briefs. I mean, these 
these were very capable and contributing members of our society who, if they hadn't gotten out of Michener Center, would just have been forgotten completely. Thank you. Claudia Malacuida, we have to end here. Thank you okay. very much for being at the New Books Network. Thank you for asking these important questions.